Welcome to the Legal Toolkit, where you'll get the latest trends and business initiatives that help your law firm every day. Hear from the experts setting the standards for the legal, insurance, and law enforcement industries. The Legal Toolkit is brought to you by Catuno Court Reporting and Stantel Transcription, a New England-based business serving the legal community nationwide since 1966. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Toolkit on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Dean Whalen. I'm General Counsel for Catuno Court Reporting and Stentel Transcription. This is our debut podcast, and we're thrilled you're with us. In this show, we would want to take a look at Massachusetts Data Breach Notification Law, Chapter 93H, and it's also referred to as 201 CMR 17. A lot of letters, a lot of numbers, but what the listeners are interested in today, what I'm interested in today is that this will affect just about every business regarding secure customer client information. And we should know that the mass regulation that, that we're talking about here today is considered one of the toughest in the nation. It was prompted by several high-profile security breaches, and it impacted customers, residents, businesses of Massachusetts with compromised personal data. We're grateful to have with us two guests today to help us to shed some light on this topic, two of the experts in the area in Massachusetts. I'd first like to welcome attorney Rodney Dowell, director of Mass Lomap. Rodney's a practicing attorney for the past 18 years, and he was selected to start Mass uh, Lomap, which is the Law Office Management Assistant Program, in July of 2007. Find him at his blog at masslomap.blogspot. Dot com. Welcome to the Legal Toolkit, Rodney. Thank you very much, Dino. It's a pleasure being here. Our next guest, Attorney David Felper, senior partner with the law firm Boldwich and Dewey, LLP. Uh, David uh, chairs the firm's litigation and labor employment practice areas. He practices uh, his concentrated in representation of management in matters including defense of uh, discrimination and wrongful termination claims, wage and hour, OSHA complaints, non-competition agreements, and contract negotiations. Welcome to the Legal Toolkit, David. Thank you, Dean. Thank you for asking me to participate. I recently heard one of your webinars, and you did a great job, David. I appreciate it. Compliance uh, being the key word here, let's kick the show off by discussing uh, Massachusetts Data Protection Law 93H. What is it? Rodney, let's start with you. Well, you know, it's simply, uh, I think what we can say is that it's, a, it's designed to protect personal information of consumers in the state of Massachusetts, and it really complies with any company uh, throughout the world that handles information uh, of Massachusetts consumers. Uh, So it has a very broad reach, uh, and we're really looking for, the state is looking to keep uh, the personal information protected that would allow people's uh, financial information to be otherwise um, compromised. Now, David, some of the law came into effect in 2007. Um, Can we talk about what security breaches served as a catalyst for this uh, 93H? Sure. Be glad to. There are really two relatively recent high-profile security breach cases that uh, were the impetus for the laws here in Massachusetts. The first and probably the most that's most well-known is the one involving the TJX company. Uh, TJX, uh, for those people that don't know, is a Massachusetts-based retailer with approximately 2,500 stores. 
its security system was first breached in July of 2005 by hackers who had placed an unauthorized computer software on TJX's computer system. By doing so, they gained access to information from customer transactions dating back to January 2003. In the end, information from more than 45 million cards was stolen from transactions from January through November 2003. Interestingly enough, TJX did not discover the breach until late 2006. In the end, uh, more than 450,000 customers who had returned merchandise without receipts had their personal data stolen, including driver's license. And in order to resolve the case, um, among other things, THX had to end up paying approximately $65 million to various issuing banks of Visa and MasterCards. Now, the second other high-profile case that led to the, the laws here in Massachusetts is another New England-based company, um, Hannaford Brothers, which is a main-based supermarket chain with about 165 stores here in the, the Northeast. Its security breach began in December of 2007, and for Hannaford Brothers, credit card numbers were stolen when shoppers swiped their cards, and the information was transmitted to banks for approval. In the end, an estimated 4.2 million credit and debit card numbers were exposed, which resulted in about 1,800 cases of reported fraud related to the breach. And just one more interesting aspect of uh, the, the breaches that have led to where we are today since the first part of the data breach laws went into effect in November of 2007, which required the reporting of breaches, uh, security breaches, um, to residents and the Attorney General's office, um, there have actually been more than 500 reported cases of stolen or lost personal information affecting more than 800,000 Massachusetts residents. So just to follow up on that, David, what security measures were implemented as a result of that TGX uh, example? Well, what TGX had to do, and I won't people with the technical details is to immediately upgrade and implement comprehensive data security procedures and to submit to outside audits, all of which was based on an agreement reached with the FTC in April of 2008. And again, I can assure you that was not done without some significant cost to TJX in terms of the upgrades and security protocols that it had to implement as a result of their breach. So we're talking about personal information, and in Massachusetts and in other states, the the term, the actual term personal information is becoming a new legal term. Um, so businesses, attorneys, uh, anybody associated in dealing with this law has to know what personal information is. Can you describe for us, uh, either one of you, uh, what the personal information legal term means now? Sure. I mean, I, I, I can bat lead off here on this one, Rodney, and you can Sure, go ahead. Yeah. Um, it's fairly t- simple terms. Um, here in Massachusetts, the definition is the last name plus either the first name or first initial of an individual plus any one or more of the following. Social security number, driver's license number, financial account information, or a credit or debit card number. Okay. And I think it just, I'm sorry, just, you know, what that indicates is just how it really is aiming at protecting the financial information that we all worry about are in identity theft cases. Right, right. So in looking at this law, certainly uh, in-house counsel, uh, you know, is in tune with this uh, or sh- certainly should be moving forward. Uh, 
uh, with you know, all the new requirements of the law protecting personal information. Um, but can we talk about some of the specifics? Uh, there's an acronym out there <laughs> that uh, that I'm reading about that that uh, anybody associated with this law is going to know, and that the acronym WISP. What does that mean? David, you want me to jump in here for a second? Absolutely. WISP uh, stands for Written Implementation Security Plan, which is just a, a basic starting point for implementing this entire Security Act measures. Uh, and basically, it, what it has to take into consideration is the uh, contact administration, the technical and physical safeguards that are appropriate uh, for a particular base uh, business. And they've made these regulations, so they tend to be somewhat um, flexible based upon size and scope and the type of business of each party uh, that holds this personal information, the amount of resources available to that uh person or entity, the amount of the stored data that they, they have in their possession, and the actual need for security and confidentiality uh, of the consumer and employee. Uh, but the, the written implementation security plan has to include a, a large number of things, uh, which are detailed in the regulations. Uh, David, do you want to talk a little bit about what additional things they m might need? Sure. I'd be glad to do that. And I think the important point to remember uh, and play off of what's something that Rodney said is that the regulations do not provide a specific definition for a comprehensive written information security program, but merely provides a non-exhausted list of requirements that all organizations storing personal information need to comply with, among other things. Uh, organizations need to regularly monitor the program and designate an individual to maintain it, identify and assess internal and external risks to information security, take steps to ensure that contractors maintain safeguards for personal information, limit access to the information on a need-to-know basis, um, ensure that the appropriate security is in place for the use of passwords and encryption where technically feasible, Maintain, and this is my favorite part of the law, reasonably up-to-date firewall protection for systems connected to the Internet. Uh, and then finally, various other points, train employees and impose disciplinary measures for security violations, review the scope of the security measures on at least an annual basis or if there's a material change in business practices, and then just document any responsive actions taken in connection with any security breach. Certainly a mouthful, and, and, and it's recitations like that that create the, uh, I, I think, the, the scare around this law. David, is there anywhere uh, businesses can go for, uh, say, a, a model WISP? Uh, the short answer is yes, uh, but I'm going to qualify it at, at the same time. The Office of Consumer Affairs and Business Regulation has on its website a sample uh, written information security program. It is designed to be used by smaller companies. Um, what's important to remember is that there is really no one-size-fits-all WISP that's available out there. That, as Rodney said, what is appropriate for your organization is going to depend on a variety of factors, including your resources, the type of information you need to protect, and several other factors. So it's important that when companies look at these sample policies, they recognize that they need to, one, adapt it to their own particular circumstances of their organization. And second, remember that these are a, this is a fluid process. 
that just as hard as companies are looking to develop ways to protect personal information, there are hackers and others out there who are working just as hard to find ways around that. So as technology changes, companies need to adapt on at least an annual basis to make sure that they are keeping up with the appropriate safeguards for personal information. And a Very second good. point I'd I just make on that is just because uh, the uh, level of resources that are available to a particular small uh, business or enterprise may be limited, that's not an excuse to not do anything. You still need to go through the process of developing your WISP and protecting any uh, personal information that you contain, uh, you you will be required to do some minimum standards. Yeah, and, uh, and let me just make what maybe the final point on this issue is that simply having the WISP in place does not mean you can simply sit back and relax. Um, and the key lesson here is from Hannaford Brothers' case, because they had their security breach despite the fact that they were in compliance with all state and federal regulations regarding the protection of personal information um, that they were in charge of. So it's the consideration is that, that simply having a plan in place um, does not relieve you of your ongoing obligation to regularly monitor the program and make sure that you're keeping up with whatever technically feasible protections you can implement. Very good. Now, you know, that's so we have an idea of, of what it is. Uh, can we talk about how companies, uh, businesses, law firms uh, are going to ready themselves for the compliance, kind of the one, two, threes, and then get to the actual details of the encryption uh, that you need to do? Sure. Let me go first on this one, Rodney. Sure. Um, I'll tell you what we recommend um, at the initial uh, stage of uh, implementing a, a program designed to protect personal information. The first and most obvious thing is each organization needs to conduct an internal audit uh, within its organization. And it needs to really be a team approach to it because, especially for large organizations, uh, they have their silos of information. The HR department deals with their silo of personnel information. Uh, uh, The business side deals with its silo of financial information. Uh, There may be a client side, which deals with client information that comes into the organization. Um, all of which needs to be considered in terms of taking the appropriate steps to protect that information. And then, of course, as part of that process, you need to have a competent information technology or management information security systems, whatever term you might use for your IT person, um, as part of the process, because only he or she or they can really tell you the risks that are associated with the information that you have in your possession. So the things you need to look at is... um, uh, are very basic I mean, in terms of what what do you have? What personal information, whether in hard copy or, or in electronic form, do you have within your organization? Where is it kept? Who has access to it, um, including um, how do they access it? And when you look at where it's kept, look not just as to where it is visibly that you can see on a, on a readily accessible basis, but also backup or hard drive um, sources of the information which need to be properly protected. And then you need to look at how long is the information kept and how is it disposed of to make sure that all proper precautions are put into place. So that's what we're suggesting at the outset, uh, the first step most companies need to take to, to address this new issue. Gentlemen, we need to take a short break when we return more about 93H with attorney Rodney Dowell and David Felper. Catuno Court Reporting and Stantel Transcription gives much more than court reporting. 
When you need legal transcriptions, video conferencing, depositions, and compliance solutions for the traditional or virtual law office, experience counts. You get that with Katuno. Call us and start building your legal toolkit at 888-228-8646. Legal Talk Network has been producing award-winning legal podcasts since 2005. Subscribe to our RSS feed and start downloading today. It's free. Welcome back to the Legal Toolkit on the Legal Talk Network. Again, we're joined by Attorney Rodney Dowell, Director of Mass Lomap, and David Felper, a senior partner with the firm Boldwich and Dewey LLP. Gentlemen, uh, let's get to right to the details of this law, the, the to-dos on uh, the recommended protocol for inscription of personal records. Rodney, can you help us with that? Sure. So this has been somewhat of a moving target as, the, as there's been some changes in the regulations as we went along. But right now, uh, encrypted means that the, the transformation of data into a form in which meaning cannot be assigned without the use of a confidential process or key. Now, this has actually become a little more, uh, well, significantly more technologically neutral in that they, the regulations are now trying to allow for the adoption of new standards over time. So the, the only um, real concern there is, is the technology you're using, I think, uh, is such technology that it actually uh, cannot be uh, transcribed without the, the use of a confidential process and key. And there's probably no encryption process that isn't absolute. Uh, but on the other hand, if you're using uh, industry standard, which is really probably uh, 128-bit encryption, uh, 256-bit encryption is a little better, you're using encryption protocols and standards that are uh, best practices in the industry and would take just enormous uh, resources as a brute force attack uh, by a hacker to get through. So uh, basically, if, you, if you're if you using uh, these standards of 128-bit encryption, uh, 256-bit encryption, which are widely available, uh, you can find them in your Word, uh, Office Word, uh, processors. You can find them in Adobe uh, Acrobat uh, PDF. Uh, you can find them in Nuance's uh, PDF Converter 6. Uh, and you can purchase various software products uh, to uh, encrypt your materials, uh, your data in these 128 and 256-bit uh, encryption uh, protocols. Uh, in addition, Probably what one of the most difficult things for people will be what all do you have to encrypt? So you need to be encrypting information that's put on electronic uh, portable devices, and that would include cell phones, smartphones, thumb drives, portable hard disks, backup tapes. Uh, but at the same time, as I say that, there's also some flexibility in the regulations to allow for uh, what's currently technologically feasible. Uh, but changes are going rapidly, and it's increasingly uh, possible to encrypt all these different types of portable electronic devices. Um, I think that what's important, though, is if you do not know how to encrypt information that's going to go on a portable electronic device, uh, you need to consult with an IT person that can show you how to do it. 
and certainly do not put on any of this personal information on your smartphone or a USB thumb drive or the portable hard disk uh, until you do know how to, to encrypt it and keep it safe. One of the other issues that I think these companies and law firms and any business associated with trying to implement the security measures around this law are going to have to deal with, uh, David, is the security certification for third-party vendors. Absolutely. And let me let me take a running start to, to answer that. Even under the current regs as, as reformulated, uh, companies can use third parties to destroy paper or electronic documents um, that they have available. However, in doing so, third parties need to be in compliance um, with the personal information laws here in Massachusetts. For that reason, it's incumbent on companies to maintain certain requirements with their third-party providers. And the regs actually, in fact, provide certain steps that companies need to take. For example, a company needs to take all reasonable steps to verify that any third-party service provider with access to personal information has the capacity to protect such personal information in the manner provided for in the regulations. So what that means is simply, I think at this point, is that the person you designate under your WISP as being responsible for monitoring the program needs to, at the very least, get copies of policies and procedures that the third parties have implemented to protect personal information. In addition, companies that contract with third parties need to take all reasonable steps to ensure that the third party service provider is actually utilizing the protective security measures in a manner at least as stringent as those required to be applied under the regulations. So I think that takes you beyond simply just asking for policies and procedures. And the question then becomes, does that require you to at least designate an individual, at least on an annual basis, to go out and visit the third-party provider to make sure that they're actually implementing those policies and procedures? And then finally, under the the regulations, what's gotten added back in that had come out of, come out of the regulations under previous iterations was the requirement that companies contract with their third parties to contractually bind the third party service providers to implement and maintain appropriate measures for protecting personal information. And the good news to that is even though that's a requirement, uh, there's a two-year window before you have to implement that. So you're not required under the regs to have that in place until March of 2012, although we suggest that be done immediately to make sure that you've implemented the proper protocols to protect personal information that's been entrusted to you. All right. So the deadline for compliance, I know the the beginning stages of the law started in 2007. Uh, I've noticed it's been pushed back a couple of times. Uh, When is the exact deadline for compliance with this law? I do a lot of these types of programs, and I always start off my presentation with sort of good news and bad news. The good news is that the regulations is not, are not due to be implemented until March 1st of 2010. The bad news is these regulations are due to be implemented March 1st, 2010. And if you wait too long to begin preparation for being in compliance with the regulations, you're going to find out that that's not too far off. Companies cannot hide their head in the sand uh, or put this off um, too long um, before they start taking the steps necessary to be in compliance with the regulations by March 1st of 2010. Very good. Any final thoughts, gentlemen? 
my last uh, comment would be, you know, the sooner the better for compliance. I think it's just best business practices to take steps to learn how and to protect uh, confidential information. Uh, and I see it as a, you know, an active marketing tool for firms and small solo practitioners and small businesses that are taking the steps to actually protect this personal information in a way that complies with what the law is now and what it will be in the near future. And I'm actually going to show that not all lawyers are alike and let somebody else have the last word. (laughs) (laughs) Well, gentlemen, that about does it for this edition to the Legal Toolkit. And remember, you can check out all of our shows at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Gentlemen, a very, very special thank you for you taking the time out of your day to be with us. Uh, Rodney, if the listeners want to get more information about you, how would they reach you? Uh, They can find us at uh, www.masslowmap.org, M-A-S-S-L-O-M-A-P.org, or give us a call at 857-383-3250. David? I can be reached at dfelper, which is D-F-E-L-P-E-R, at Bowditch, B-O-W-D-I-T-C-H, dot com. And again, my name's Dean Whalen of Catuno Court Reporting and Stentel Transcription. If you want to reach us, our phone number is 888-228-8646. We have offices in Springfield, Worcester, and Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, We'll see you next time on the Legal Toolkit. Thank you very much to our guests. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Legal Toolkit. Brought to you by Katuno Court Reporting and Stantel Transcription, right here on the Legal Talk Network. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, Join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.